Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. It was in 1982 that I saw the stage version of Cork sculptor and stone carver Seamus Murphy's memoir, Stone Mad, at the Peacock Theatre. Fergus Linhan's adaptation featuring a solo performance by the late, great Eamon Kelly led me directly to the delights of the book itself. Set in the Cork Stoneyard, where Murphy served his apprenticeship in the 1920s, Stone Mad is an intimate portrait of the Stonies, as the cutters and carvers were known, who trained him in his craft. The book eavesdrops with a delicious wickedness on their glorious shop talk and their secret Masonic vocabulary. Mallets and skew chisels, crockets and carved bosses, columns and caps, volutes and acanthus leaves. Not to mention the well-travelled stone itself, with its sonorous, far-flung names, Vermont granite, Indiana limestone, Purbeck marble. I was working in the Irish press at the time. I little thought, reading his lament for the passing of the stone trade, that the ancient craft of printing was similarly under threat. It would have been inconceivable then to imagine that the iron-jawed and seemingly invincible linotype machines on Burr Quay churning out galleys of print, or the metal bogies on which the finished forms were pushed from stone to printing press would soon be supplanted by computer keyboards and email connections, and that the paper itself would be shut down. As journalists, we might have fancied ourselves as having masterminded the newspaper and designed pages to the last detail, but it was the printers who magicked them into being. They were like conjurers, slivers of metal like quicksilver in their hands. Theirs might have been considered a heavy industry, but the printers and compositors I knew were champions of grace and invention, and like the Stonies, they too had their own secret language of delight. When Seamus Murphy wrote Stone Mad in 1950, the closed shop that was the stone trade was in steep decline. Sandblasting machines had replaced the highly intricate inscription work previously done by hand. I do not know how far I have succeeded in giving an idea of how the men engaged in the stone trade worked and lived, he wrote modestly in the introduction to the book. It was not easy for me. I have not the slickness of the craft of writing. Murphy was being too modest. He applied the same skills he used as a carver specialising in foliage, a keen appreciation for the smallest detail of nature, the whorl of a tulip, the globe of a cherry, and applied it to human nature. The overlooked curlicues in buildings often poised several stories high so that the pedestrian at ground level missed them were Seamus Murphy's delight. He recalls a visit to Dublin, immortalised in Stone Mad, in which the granite fusilier, one of a host of colourful characters with equally vivid nicknames, unveils the hidden gems in the architecture. The carved heads on the Francis Street Market building, each depicting a different nationality, the fish, crab and anchor standing in for the Atlantic Ocean over the ballast office, the heads carved in Portland stone on the Custom House representing the rivers of Ireland all of which are still visible today if we care to look up. But it is the human drolleries and foibles of the men he worked with, Blue Skull, the Gargoyle, the Gabon, Black Jack, Stun and the Dirty Boy, that endure, 
revealing Murphy to have been as skillful and precise with the pen as the chisel. Stone Mad must be the least ego-driven memoir ever written. The author is like one of those stone caryatids he so admired, a benign presence perched discreetly on a ledge, casting a kind eye on the proceedings. Much of Seamus Murphy's public work may similarly go unremarked now. It is the fate of public sculpture. It retreats into the background and becomes part of the street furniture. You may think you wouldn't recognise a work of Murphy's, but next time you're strolling through Stephen's Green, you'll pass a bronze bust of Countess Markovitch near the central fountain, which is his. Or when you're on your way through Cork's Bishop Lucy Park at lunchtime, you might notice the gnarled and knotty figure of the onion seller. That's his too. His work as a stone carver, of course, is everywhere, slyly and anonymously, inserted into convent chapels and church niches from Kilrush to Tralee and inscribed on gravestones and cemeteries all over the country. It is that sense of the effaced craftsman that makes stone mad, the literary equivalent of Seamus Murphy's finest work in stone, a door lovingly inched open on the now permanently closed shop. It was the summer of 1970, and I had just finished my first year in college, or uni, as we called it. There was no such thing as interrailing or J1s to the States back then, or at least not for me. Summer for me was about finding a job, any kind of job that would pay a few bob and go towards my keep the following academic year. The job I found that summer, or rather, the job that found me, was cutting rushes on the river barrel. The job found me because my employer, an entrepreneur of sorts, though he was called a businessman back then, happened to be married to my sister. He manufactured coffins for a living, and when the coffin factory closed for the summer holidays in August, he, along with his workers, took to the river in boats to cut rushes. And this particular summer, he took me with him. My mother, I must confess, was reluctant to let me go. Would I be safe on the river, she worried, sure the chap can hardly swim, which was true. But my brother-in-law, who made up in charm what he lacked in stature, smiled at my mother, saying, Ara, we'll make a man of him yet, ma'am. Actually, my mother had every right to be worried, as the boats in question were made of soft or beachy timber by the workers in the coffin factory, and would most certainly not meet the health and safety standards of today. <laughs> my brother-in-law cut rushes because his father before him cut them and sold them to Guinness's Brewery, I believe, where the Coopers used them for insulation in the wooden beer barrels. 
The use of rushes, however, was in sharp decline back in 1970, as aluminium barrels began to replace the old timber ones. Yet my brother, he continued the practice, having sourced a market for them with some basket maker in Holland. There were maybe eight of us in all cutting the rushes, and we worked two to a boat. One cutting the rushes with a side, while the other, positioned directly behind, stacked them, tying them into neat bundles until such time as the boat could hold no more when we'd offload them on the riverbank. I worked with Martin, who was not just the rush cutter, but captain, as it were, of my boat. Standing directly behind him, I neatly stacked the rushes that he smartly and swiftly cut and swung back to me by the fistful. Because we were paid by the bundle, those rushes came thick and heavy, and it took all in my power to neatly stack and tie them with the lengths of bearing twine dangling from my trouser belt, all the while wary that I might lose my balance and fall headlong into the river. When the boat was full, Martin rowed to the bank where we stacked the bundled rushes in rows, leaving them to dry for a week or so before they were stored in some central depot, a disused shed or hay barn that my brother-in-law had rented from some local farmer. Martin and myself became good buddies over the course of the summer. Come lunchtime, Martin would light a fire on the riverbank place the kettle on top, but not before tossing in a few fresh eggs to boil, which we'd later devour with slices of thick brown bread and the reddest, ripest tomatoes I had ever seen. When we had finished for the day, we piled into the back of my brother-in-law's pickup truck as he drove to the local village for some well-earned minerals, ale shandies, and maybe a game of darts. And afterwards, the crack was mighty in the back of that truck, speeding towards home, singing at the top of our lungs the huge hit of the summer, Mungo Jerry's in the summertime. <laughs> I don't know if my brother-in-law made a man of me that summer, but here's what I learned that August of 1970. I learned, not least from Martin, the captain of my boat, how to boil an egg in a kettle. I learned that tomatoes taste better with a pinch of pepper. And above all, I learned that whatever it was I learned in my first year of university, it was of no consequence whatsoever in a boat for two cutting rushes on the river barrow. Such a quiet, unobtrusive thing, so easy to miss or dismiss. Just a small wood-turned bowl, only four inches in diameter, two and a half high. A brown bowl. The wood seems unremarkable. 
No showy lines of spalting or flamboyant color contrasts or rippled figuring. But look more closely. See a pattern of darker stripes and ribbons of grain and wood rays coursing across the surface. It appears to float in the air. Its narrow base is overhung, hidden. You must touch it. Cup your hands around it. Caress it. Feel the silky smooth sides swelling gently to the top. Stroke your thumbs across the rolling lip of the rim. Close your eyes. Cradle the bowl in one hand. Run the fingers of the other down the inside. Trace the curve, continuous, all the way down, then back up and in. In. The rim is undercut, subtly. Open your eyes. Now see how the shadow of the rim frames the interior. Feel its weight, its perfect proportions and balance. Let it rock on your fingertips. Heavier than an egg, lighter than a pear. And it is deliciously erotic, its curved sides so perfectly hand-sized and tactile. It is deeply satisfying, so deceptively simple and refined, self-contained, not screaming for attention, not posing. Clearly, a bread-and-butter production bowl by some master craftsman. It is a distillation of technique and experience and exquisite sensibility. Our little brown bowl sits on my desk in the top right corner next to the computer in its own space, clear of the mess of papers and cables. I leave it empty. It appears self-sufficient, a container of air. When I come in at night from my own wood-turning studio and sit at the desk, I like to fantasize that it has been waiting for me, patiently and faithfully, like Silas Marner's cherished water jug. After a bad day, it gives comfort and reassurance. And every so often, there are bad days. Woodturners sometimes describe their craft as a dialogue with the wood. Like a potter shaping a lump of clay on a wheel, a woodturner shapes a piece of wood on a lathe, the wood spinning terrifically fast and the turner removing long dramatic shavings with razor-sharp gouges and chisels. Woodturners try to work with the wood, to compromise between imposing themselves on the material and allowing the wood to have its own voice. On a good day, there is a conversation. On a bad day, there is an argument. The wood might split, or reveal hidden checks or unwanted bark intrusions, or you might make a mistake, or simply be overambitious. And after a frustrating day like this, the little bowl lifts my spirits, brings me back to basics, tells me quietly that good design depends above all on line and form, that technique is a means to an end and not an end in itself. It reminds me of the observation by the woodworker and writer David Pye. The difference between the thing which sings and the thing which is forever silent 
is often very slight indeed. I discovered the little bowl a few years ago in Dublin in the old Oxfam shop in Francis Street, languishing incongruously among the second-hand bric-a-brac of teapots and mug trees and toast racks. Curious and delighted, I picked it up and marvelled. When I turned it over, it made sense. Neatly inscribed on the base were the words, Ciaran Forbes, Glenstall Abbey, Home Oak. A signed bowl by a legendary and hugely respected woodturner, the most spiritual and spirited of monks, passionate and deeply serious about his craft. When describing what he aspires to create as a woodturner, Ciaran repeatedly refers to song, in particular to Schubert, which, he says, conjoins what I hear as a listener and what I endeavour to achieve as a bowl maker, the production of a sustained, unbroken line from rim to base. Legato singing in the Western art tradition and the flowing line of a wooden bowl mirror one another. This aspiration is perfectly realised in my little bowl, which I immediately rescued for all of two euros. a seat that stood outside the house where I was born, 23 Gardner Place, Dublin. My parents were from Kilkenny and so was the culture of that household. It was called Kilkenny House, although by rights it should have been called Kilkenny Hurling House, and it sat in the middle of the capital like a Kilkenny embassy, a little bit of that county's soil in a foreign place. The seat never rested in a leafy bower or shady nook. It was naked and exposed there on the steps of that Georgian house. It was where we sat in the evening sun to watch the world go by, in the time between clearing up after middle-of-the-day dinners and before the lodgers came home for tea. On that seat we chatted to neighbours and watched the goings-on of the street. It was where a million moves on the hurling field were discussed and argued over and where the wood became shiny from use by hurlers and former hurlers' backsides. The seat had an ornate skeleton of wrought iron with fancy ends on it. The seat and back were made of wood, and it was an annual project to paint it and so protect it from the weather it endured all year round, for it was never moved from the step. My father often painted it, and my childhood memory pictures it in pale green and then a dark red, but once I remember the job being done by a famous Kilkenny hurler, Tommy Lahey from Arlingford, who won three All-Irelands with my father in the 30s. A craft painter by trade, he grained it using an elaborate process of stain, rollers and combs, with much talk of getting various stages of the task done before the rain came 
because it was all done out on the step. In Kilkenny House, the day of a hurling All-Ireland, no matter who was playing, was bigger than Christmas. People travelled the day before or came on trains and buses that began their journeys in the middle of the night. Working men who had gone to make their living in England would come home for the All-Ireland. Arriving a few days beforehand, they would be welcomed into the house like family, invited down to the basement kitchen to chat and drink tea or large bottles of stout and small whiskies at all hours of the day and night. This was their annual holiday, so they were going to make the most of it and there would be full cooperation afforded to them in Kilkenny House. Regulars would know to book their bed well in advance for that first weekend in September. As a small child, I would be stationed, weather permitting, outside on the seat on the Saturday evening before the match to tell people that we had no room and to redirect them to neighbouring guest houses. But no matter how many we had staying in the house, it was a dead cert that my father, having spent the evening in Tommy Moore's of Cathedral Street or Club Nigay along North Great Georgia Street, would come home with some poor old devil that hadn't a bed and sure you couldn't leave him out. <laughs> and it was many the morning of a match that we found someone stretched out on that seat on the step, having failed to find a bed somewhere else in Dublin. By lunchtime on match day, the house would be full of huge countrymen eating plates of cold ham, spuds and mushy peas, followed by jelly and cream and cups of tea to fortify them. And amid it all, there was the hunt for tickets, the swapping and bartering, buying and selling, begging and pleading. If you had a spare ticket, it was the place to come to sell it or swap it or even give it away, but which or whether to find a good home for it before the throw-in. This was before the fans in Croke Park were called, quote, patrons, unquote. <laughs> and no one was telling them not to enter the, quote, playing area, unquote. <laughs> we called it the pitch, and we had many ecstatic moments swarming onto it to watch trophies being lifted in the Hogan stand by men in black and amber. Then we'd rush back to Gardner Place to sit on that same seat and watch the huge stream of supporters moving down Gardner Place on their way home again many stopping for a quick post-mortem of the match, heading for pints and more food at the Castle Hotel or Barry's before boarding buses and trains again. A year or so after my father's death in 1965, we moved to Fibsborough, leaving a lot behind us in that house. But my mother took the seat, and so it rested at last in a garden for nearly 40 years. When my mother died in 2003, I took her to Kilkenny, from where, for all I know, my grandparents brought it when they moved to Dublin at the start of the last century. It's sitting in my back garden in Thomastown, and if truth be known, it needs a coat of paint and a few repairs at the moment. All going well, it will be a resting place for hurlers' backsides for another hundred years or so. was growing up in Carrick and Shore, there were about a dozen painters and decorators in the town. My father, being one of that colourful brotherhood, 
I was literally at home with all the gear, smells and substances of my father's trade. Paint and distemper, turpentine and linseed oil, methylated spirit and paraffin for the blow lamp, wallpaper paste, putty and varnish, and brushes and scrapers, trestles and step ladders, and painters' overalls. It's a mystery to me now how all of it fitted in and around our 1940s council house beside the fair green, along with seven children, our parents, and near the end of her life, my paternal grandmother as well. In their youth, my father and his brother Peter had, as they termed it, served their time as apprentices to a town painter of a previous generation. Along with all the basic skills of painting and of mixing colours, they learned paper hanging, glazing and graining, as well as the superior craft of sign writing. My father was periodically in hospital with tuberculosis and never had any security of employment. The irony for the town's painters was that though they might be drinking buddies, they were also competing with one another for whatever little work was available. My mother, from Waterford City, was a versatile pianist and violinist. Her occasional gig with a dance band or for a local musical show or a wedding could keep the wolf temporarily from the door. The anticipation of the Corpus Christi procession around the town in June gave an annual lift to the painting trade with the repainting of shop fronts and houses along the route. It was said that a crafty painter's use of thinned out varnish for Corpus Christi operations ensured the need for refurbishment next year. <laughs> if Irish rain clouds held off on the evening of the feast day, the procession brought a brief Fellini-esque makeover, transfiguring mundane streets towards something Mediterranean. I remember it for its sensuous, as well as its sacred character, which included hymns in Latin by no less than St. Thomas Aquinas, Pange lingua gloriosi, corporis mysterium. The procession was dominated by the clergy of the time, but beyond the clericalism was something ageless and seductive the celebration of summer. With sonorous brass band and communal chant, bunting, fresh paint, side altars and statuary, candles, incense and flowers transforming our drab streets. Corpus Christi was, after all, the feast of the body. Years on, the procession would wend its way into a poem I called Incarnation. Today is the feast of the body, the body of Christ, the blossoming body of everything. And summer is carried through the streets under a golden canopy with incense and rose petals, with trombones and cornets and bass drum, cymbals and horns and euphonium brassing the evening air. Perhaps it was the town's much-loved brass band tradition along with having musical parents, that prompted my own first musical urgings. As a boy, I set myself up as a resident drummer in our backyard with peeled sally sticks 
and a selected array of my father's discarded paint cans of different sizes and tonalities on which to play to my own singing of The Minstrel Boy or O'Donnell Aboo and to the bemusement of the neighbours. There's that young Cody at it again. <laughs> you can't beat breeding. <laughs> Much later in my teens and at secondary school, I'd be inducted as a novice trombonist into my Uncle Peter's dance band, in which my mother played piano. While still a boy, however, I often had to accompany my father as his general helper on paper hanging or painting jobs around the town. Though I couldn't complain, it weighed upon me like a wearisome imprisonment, especially during school holidays, with all my friends liberated to roam around the river and the fields. Serving time, indeed, and prematurely bound to adult drudgery and responsibility. I'm sure my father hated drawing me into it, but this was his only means of livelihood, while his more heartfelt vocation drew him to books and music, sketching and painting watercolours, for which he had a natural talent. At the age of 51, he suffered his first serious heart attack, and for his remaining 15 years of life, he wrote occasional pieces for the local newspapers and painted watercolour scenes which he sold, whenever he could, for a pittance and which can still ambush my heart when I occasionally encounter them framed in people's houses. We'll rise again, he used to say, or die in the attempt. I'm a Roman jack of many a trade, of every trade of all trade. And if you wish to know my name, they call me Jack of all trade. I'm a roving and a sporting blade, they call me Jack of all trades. I always take a great delight in courting pretty fair maids. When in Dublin I arrived to look for a situation, the people there would always say it's the pride of all the nation. This morning's programme was recorded in the Watergate Theatre as part of Kilkenny Arts Festival in 2011, which marked the year of craft. It was produced by Cleanany Onloon. The scripts you heard included The Closed Shop by Mary Marcy. Jerry Moran gave us Two Men in a Boat. Also in there was Bowl by Roger Bennett. The Hurler's Seat was from Cathy Power. And Michael Cody brought us Corpus Christi Varnish. The music included Le Fille Chevaux de Lain by Debussy, which was played on piano by Finian Collins. Bach's Siciliana was played by Redmond O'Toole on guitar. Often Vazar's Zuzingan by Schubert was sung by Judith Mock, who was accompanied on piano by Finian Collins. Redmond O'Toole and Kevin Kniff brought us Morrison's jig and then you heard Kevin singing the Dublin Jack of All Trades with Redmond on guitar. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.